Life is really hard for you right now, not because you're doing it wrong, but because you're finally doing it right. The thing is that being human isn't about feeling happy. It's about feeling everything. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In today's episode, we're sitting down with activist, philanthropist, and New York Times bestselling author, Glennon Doyle. In her most recent memoir, Untamed, she reveals how she broke the mold of who the world wanted her to be in order to live out her true purpose. Today, she's going to teach us all how to get untamed and embrace our most authentic selves. Ooh, Ange, are you ready? I am so pumped for this. So I know you've been such a big fan of this book since it came out. I picked it up on Monday, I'll admit, and was like, okay, I need to get on board. I need to get into this. And I am so in. I'm so here for it. And I sort of feel like the pandemic is making a lot of people untamed. Yeah, I think this book came out right when the pandemic was starting. And all I saw at first was the cover. And I was like, I'm pissed at this woman because this is the cover I should have had on my book. It's the colors, the sparkles, and then the content in the book is even better. And I was literally, you can ask my husband, I was melt, I was like melting reading this thing. I had it on audio book while I was just doing yoga and running. And I would stop in the middle of my trail run and just look at the sky and be like, me and Glennon are meant to be like soulmates forever. And then I realized every other girlfriend I know was also reading this book. And so it's just become like the phenomenon of 2020, despite all the other phenomenons happening. But I guess one thing I was I was really leaning into with the book was about being your true self and living authentically. And it made me think that, you know, we're moms, we are entrepreneurs, we have struggled in so many ways being authentic, at least I have. And I was curious, Ange, what has this brought up for you? deep down. So I kind of had the same experience this week while I've been reading it because I keep like being like, Dave, you need to listen to this. This is so well-written. I mean, she referenced the princess bride in the same breath as Buddha and Jesus. I'm like, yes, please. But I think what it's bringing up for me is I think it's validating a lot of the feelings that I've felt and adding words and terms to them. So I think, you know, she talks about the knowing and sort of that going inside yourself. And I think that I, I'd like to think I have been practicing some of that, but without being able to articulate it. So that feels really good. And then I also think, I feel like I've just become a more and more unfiltered version of myself as I get older, right? And I have kids and I just need to be so true to myself and it really fe- it like fuels me reading this so far. I'm halfway through, so I still have a ways to go. But yeah, what about you? Yeah, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten quieter from a soul perspective. And I've been able to tune into this like sense of gravity pointing me in one direction or another. And I feel like Untamed, to your point, puts words around that gravity and pushes you into it in a way that no other book or no other words have done. And even if it's scary and it feels weird or wrong, like 
you have to feel comfortable moving into that next place. So I think that's what the sum of the book is to me. But we're going to talk to the person who created this magic and who has impacted all of our lives. We're going to go deep. I am so thrilled to introduce Glennon Doyle, who is here to teach us how to untame ourselves. Welcome, Glennon. Well, hello. What a gorgeous introduction. Thank you for that. I had so much fun listening to you too. Are we too much like of fangirls for you or can you handle <laughs> no, us right now? you are precisely the exact right about. Is okay. All right. Okay, yes. good. Well, I have a lot of questions, so I'm so glad you're here. Um, and before we dig in on how to untame ourselves and find our authentic selves, let's talk about why we lose it in the first place. You say that this can happen to girls at a very young age, often around eight to 10 years old. Can you share your own experience of losing yourself for those who haven't read the book? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just girls. I think it happens to everybody, right? And it's not, not I think, I know that it happens. It's social conditioning, right? So we're born with these wild, unique selves. And then um, we start getting messages from the moment we're born about how we should act. And, um, you know, just from even the facial expressions from our parents to, you know, every message that comes us at us from everywhere. But we really start to formalize our... Um, conditioning, we start to really internalize it somewhere between the ages of seven and 12. Okay. So, um, you know, what this looks like and it's just, you know, you start to figure out, oh, okay. So I'm a Doyle and this is how Doyles behave, right? I'm a girl and this is how girls act. I'm a Christian. And this is what Christians are supposed to say they believe in, or they're supposed to hate. And this is, you know, I'm an American and this is what an American says they value. And it's just, over and over, just kind of putting yourself into these different boxes, right? Um, and we do that for protection, okay? Because this is how, you know, people have survived for a very long time. You know, the pack mentality of um, I will give up part of my individuality in exchange for the protection of the herd, right? That's just how we were made. So, so our, our identities kind of become our tribe, right? And you can see, you know, I used to be an elementary school teacher. So I used to watch at recess, you know, a little boy, our boys are taught in our culture, boys don't cry, boys are certain, boys are not vulnerable. And you could see it play out at recess. Like if a little boy did start to cry, which was breaking that social contract, you could see immediately what happens, the tribal shaming right? That comes when a little boy steps out of line, when a little girl is like a really, really strong leader, right? What happens to her? Like, where are you bossy or whatever? It happens to all of us. I think as a young kid, I just figured out girls aren't supposed to be as complicated and pissed off and full of doubt and fear and human. They're just not as allowed to be as fully human as I feel. I became bulimic when I was 10 years old. And I think that that was a lot of things. It was a sensitive kid not having the tools to, to deal with feeling all of her feelings. Um, and, you know, that's what addiction is for a lot of people, actually. It's just a numbing of self, right? Which is why recovery kind of feels like a, a returning to self, right? It's a recovering that, that real self that we buried underneath um, everything. But, but it, you know, it was dramatic for me. I didn't get sober till I was 25, but it happens universally. I mean, I had, I have a, a boy and two girls until they tell me different. And my um, teenage boy was having friends over and I peeked my head in the room and I said, is anybody hungry? And what happened next was so amazing. All of the boys 
without taking their, their eyes off the TV. They all said, yes. Okay. So you see what happened there. They mm -hmm. heard a question. They looked for the answer inside themselves and they said it on the outside. Okay. <laughs> Nailed this Q and A, right? Yes. But the girls all did something completely different. So they, it was like slow motion. So first of all, no, none of the girls said a word, complete silence from them at first. And then every single girl took her eyes off the television and started looking at each other's faces. Okay. So these girls are looking at their friends' faces to find out if they themselves are hungry inside their own bodies. Okay. And then in some kind of wild mental telepathy, they all somehow appointed a spokesgirl. I still don't know how. The girl, she's this little freckled braided girl in the corner. She turns to me and she says, no, thank you. We're fine. And I just thought, oh my God, like that women, you know, we get, to, get to my age and, and my friends will be like, I don't know what I want in my life. I don't even know what I want for freaking dinner. Right? Like we, we don't know what we like. We don't know who we want to be. We don't know whether we're hungry or not. We don't know what our favorite color is. We don't know what we like to do for joy. We don't know. And that's because at a very early age, boys are taught in moments of uncertainty, which life is nothing, if not one repetitive moment of uncertainty. Right? Mm -hmm. Especially this year. <laughs> All of it is just, yeah. So boys are taught to look inside for desire, for their own wisdom, for their gut, for their whatever. But girls are taught to look outside hmm. for approval, right? For consensus, for permission, right. Yep. right? And so then somewhere along the line, it's just like a line is cut between our gut and our head. And then we become 40-year-old women who don't know what we want. And is that the media? Is it how we're raising them as parents? Is it everything? What do you think it amounts to? Well, I mean, it's living in a patriarchal culture, right? I mean, first of all, I think there's two things. One, you could look at through lens of capitalism, okay? So all of us are trained to lose ourselves, right? Because mm -hmm. the goal, 88% of every message that we get from anywhere during the day is from someone trying to sell us something, yep. okay? Their whole entire job is to set up ideals, attach their product to an ideal, and then sell it to us. Right. And the way they right. do that is they just make us feel like crap about ourselves. Right. Because people who feel like less than buy more, we can look at it through a capitalist lens or we can look at it from a patriarchal lens in that, you know, women are in every avenue taught not to trust ourselves. Right. I mean, I was mm -hmm. born, I was raised inside of, of Christianity, inside of religion. So the first story I ever learned about women and God was. Okay, so in the beginning, everything was perfect because it was God and this dude, and they were like bros, okay? <laughs> everything was awesome. And then this bitch shows up, right? Totally. <laughs> this oh, bitch shows up, and she can't <laughs> leave well enough alone, and she's not grateful for this freaking Eden. She had <laughs> to have more. And then um, she trusted herself, and then all hell broke loose and all suffering was unleashed on the earth and all of her descendants were cursed forever. Go with God, girls. Right? Like, <laughs> shit. Right. Like, it's not, it, it, it's so funny when you start talking about this because people are like, where do we learn this? And then I start, they're like, it's not subtle. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not subtle. The messages, and then, you, so we're not supposed to trust our ambition or our curiosity or our hunger, right? All that's there in the Eve message. Right. Like, what, from the beginning of 
all the messages from the culture, like we're not supposed to leave our hair alone. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to trust our bodies to do what they need to do. We're supposed to starve them. We're not supposed to trust our skin. We're supposed to shoot it with poison. We're supposed to inject the patriarchy beneath our foreheads. Like that's what we're supposed to do. (laughs) We're supposed, if we have curly hair, we're supposed to straighten it. If we have straightened hair, we're supposed to curl it. Like we're supposed to constantly be changing who we are in our body and our mind and our ambition forever. Like that's the end goal of patriarchy is to make sure that women don't trust themselves and to make sure that nobody else trusts women. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so that's where we get it. We get it from everywhere, which is why, you know, I think one of the most, I wear a necklace that says more, the the, the word just says more. I like that. I'm thinking like, what's the most subversive word I could put on my body? Like for a woman, it's more like, you're not allowed to want more. I mean, Mm -hmm. every time we feel discontent, we're supposed to feel guilty about it. We're supposed to feel like, oh, we're not grateful enough, right? right? Which is wholly female. Totally. Like you will never hear a man sitting around going, do you guys think I'm grateful enough? Like (laughs) maybe I should just get out my gratitude journal. No, (laughs) no. When they can imagine more, right? They just trust that that means that they were meant for more. Mm. We think it means we're not grateful enough. Right. We have to live in our little shell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And 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 that goes back to the first narratives we learn. Like, here's right. your little shell. Here's your Eden. Right. I'm telling you, this is the best there is. So just don't ask any questions. Well, I feel like, you know, one of the reasons readers resonate with your books, and not just this one, but this one in particular so much, is that you share so much of your own journey of rediscovering yourself. And it's not just about these huge moments. A lot of these moments are really small sort of micro moments, especially, of course, in your most recent chapter of life, getting divorced from your husband, getting remarried to Abby Wambach, and now having a blended family with your three kids. Has it been easy being such an open book with the world? You know, was your family always supportive of you sharing your story and using these moments to really capture such a powerful message? Okay. I would argue that these are only questions that people ask female artists. When a man is writing about his life or the world, it's called memoir. It's called literature. It's called all of the things that we call that it when men write about their lives, right? When a woman writes about her life, what's important to her, right? Her community, her, her recovery, her family, her whatever. It's, it's sharing. It's oversharing. It's confessional. It's chick lit. It's whatever, right? What I would say to that question is I'm an artist. I write about my life. What my parents think is that I'm a really good artist and that I use my life and my experiences to create art that serves other people and serves my own family. I think it's, it's super important that we frame women writing about what they care about in the correct way, because if we always call it like sharing or oversharing or confessional, mm-hmm. then there will be shame attached to it because what women do largely care about is their families. Mm-hmm. And so if women are going to write about their lives if they're going to be memoirists, if they're going to be poets, if they're going to be whatever, they're going to be re- be writing about their relationships. And we need to value that as much as we value the male memoir narrative. So what I would say is my kids, we have constant conversation, just like anybody would with their children about like, what do you want shared of your life? And what do you not want shared with your life? And, and what form do you feel like there's a difference between an essay and a social media post? And like, what are you allowed to share about your life on social media? I mean, those are constant conversations in our family. Mm-hmm. But I also hold the line of what is art 
like for women, what's defined as art and writing and what's sharing. Well, and I actually think your response is so powerful because I do think it's it's a typical question. It's a typical question we ask. It's a typical question we get. Even just on Instagram, you think like, oh, I'm really putting myself out there. You know, I'm sharing this thing. That's what's powerful. And you're right. It's like that's what's serving people is your experience and your takeaways from it. So I love that you have really thought it through. And it's about redefining and reframing how we're all telling our stories, right? Yeah. It's not just about like a sharing circle. <laughs> right, right, right. I think the point is though, and that even on Instagram, it's about being your authentic self. And so yep. that leads me to our next section, which is sort of like, you know, Glennon, we want you to teach us and everyone listening how to rediscover our authentic self and how to lead these untamed lives. So what's the most important place for someone to start? Well, first of all, I think this is a great time to do it. Right. I think like one of the reasons we're all so uncomfortable and miserable, <laughs> maybe I'm projecting, maybe you guys are awesome. I'm a little uncomfortable and miserable. Okay. <laughs> I'm in a basement with no Wi-Fi. I'm a yeah. lot of things. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm not living my best life at the moment. Okay. <laughs> and I think it has a lot to do. It reminds me a lot of early recovery, actually. It's like mm. this forced stillness and this forced sitting in our own stuff and you know, we're just so, we're like those snow globes, right? We just keep ourselves so shaken up with busyness and outward drama and all that. And now we're just stuck. It's like the snow has settled and we're just stuck with ourselves, which is just awful, but also the only way growth ever happens, right? The only people Mm -hmm. who are living authentically and truly are people who allow the snow to settle and deal with what they can see in the center of their lives and their relationships and their communities and their work and the world, right? So I think there's great opportunity in this forced stillness. And I guess what I would hope for as we come out of it is that women especially, I mean, I wish all the good things for men, but they're just not my business. So I'm just <laughs> speaking to women here. Um, Us too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I, I hope that there's a kind of a, a reclaiming of parts of ourselves that we have been collectively shamed out of, right? So one of those areas would be emotions. I think that we have been conditioned, tamed and over and over again into somehow seeing anything we say as emotional, even while men are tantruming and starting wars constantly and not like we've, we've somehow been shamed out. We, we think we have to be machines now and that whenever we bring um, our emotion to the table, that that is a sign of weakness. And I think we need to reverse that big, big time you know, and just reject all of the ideas that, you know, for example, reclaiming the angry woman. If I could tell you, I mean, every single speaking event I've ever done, somebody raises their hand at the end and says, I'm just, Glennon, I'm just really struggling with my anger. Why am I so angry? What's wrong with me? And I always think, oh my God, there's only two types of women that I respect in the world right now. And that is angry women and women who are in a coma, right? Like if, if you're not angry, you better show me that you have just woken up from a coma. And 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 if you have, I'm gonna send you some links and you are not gonna believe the shit we have going on down here. Right? <laughs> like you, yes, for God's sakes, I hope you're angry. Right? That's that's the bot, that's the baseline of people mm-hmm. we're accepting into the club at this point, right? So it, it's just amazing to me how fully patriarchal ideas have shamed women out of their anger and, and, and our, all marginalized groups, 
right? And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's obvious, like the reason that power does not want women in all marginalized groups embracing their anger is because angry people demand and make change. Anger is for sure the fuel of a lot of my art and, and, the, and all of my activism, right? Yeah. So what I think is that there is a kind of anger that can turn toxic and that is the kind of anger that isn't used as fuel that just like sits and simmers and doesn't have any sort of outlet. Um, and the, and so the people that I see, my favorite people are pissed off women who are working while they're pissed, right? So who are um, using their anger as fuel to make art are using their anger as fuel to serve are using anger as fuel to write, to march, to, you know, and that kind of anger, it, it's just so beautiful. That's actually how we started Britain Co. I was angry that 76% of women say they're not creative over and over again. And it kind of goes back to your point as a little girls, 100% of girls think they're creative mm-hmm. at like age five, but only 20% of women believe they're creative. And literally we create every day. Isn't We're making so things every day. And I got so pissed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think about growing up and I was always, you know, artsy and artist. My whole family was like, you know, I wonder where she gets that from and so on. My mom made every single thing in our house, right? She had a full-time job. She made clothes. She made curtains. She made tablecloths, did paintings, photography, would have things like enlarged and framed. And she was like, I just don't know where you get that creative thing from. And I was like, are you kidding? It's literally you. Like it's it's from you or it's from me. It doesn't matter who it's from, but like you're creative. Like you're the OG artist in the family. You know, I've just given a name to it and I've called myself an artist. You know, you've been doing it all along while, you know, being a mom and having a full-time job and just never giving yourself that permission to define oneself as creative. So, I mean, we could have a whole separate thing about that, (laughs) but it's so true. And it's so part of that conditioning. I love that story. That's so good. Your mom was over there like, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, she's like having her renaissance now, you know, like she's in her 70s, she's retired, like my room's her craft room, she's got a sewing room. But, um, But just talking about feelings, there's so much that's productive about anger, right? And you talk about it as fuel. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about all of the feelings, right? Mm-hmm. And, and finding that space for joy and sadness and grief. And, you know, I know that's a big piece of your writing and also a big piece of what I think people are allowing themselves to delve into right now, right? Is yeah. all the feelings, the bright spots with the kids, the mm-hmm. really dark spots with the kids. <laughs> with the kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the like, I'm brain dead and I think you might be strangling me. That was yesterday. <laughs> oh, God, guys, how are we doing it? How are we doing? I don't know. I think that it's a tricky conditioning we get from our culture and from most of our families because nobody knows how to deal with pain, which is this idea that's that's force-fed to us that successful humaning is being happy. The end. And so tragically, we are all human. 
And so we have joy, we have happiness, um, but we also have everything else, right? If we are lucky and we're having the entire human experience, we have all, so this is going back to me at 10 years old, right? Well, wait, I'm supposed to be happy all the time, but but I'm angry and I'm scared and I'm, um, I feel left out and I'm jealous and I'm all these things. So that must mean there's something wrong with me. Okay, so I must need to numb all of this. So when I got sober when I was 25, I started going to recovery meetings. And it's really scary to get sober after you've been lost to addiction for a long time because when you're ruining your life with addiction, you have this little voice in your head that's telling you it's going to be okay because I'm going to get sober one day and then everything's going to be fine. Okay. It'll be, it's going to be, it's about to be fine <laughs> tomorrow. Right. And then you quit and then everything gets way worse. Okay. So everybody's been trying been presenting sobriety as this like heaven and then you get sober and it's hell. Okay. Because it's like defrosting. It's like you had frostbite and you're all, you know, you've been numbing all of these feelings and it all comes back and it's terrifying because you think, oh my God, I thought my problem was the booze, but what if my problem is me and there's no escape from me? So it's this very scary pocket of time, early recovery. And so I'm in a meeting and I stood up and said, you know, I'm just scared that there's some secret of life that I don't have. Okay. Because life feels like it's easier for everyone else than it feels like it is for me. And this woman came up to me after the meeting and she said, okay, honey, I want to tell you something that, that someone told me in early recovery. And that is this, if there's any secret, it's that life is really hard for you right now, not because you're doing it wrong, but because you're finally doing it right. The thing is that being human isn't about feeling happy. It's about feeling everything. And half of our emotions are really, really hard to feel and stay with, which is why so few people do it. But the, the truth is that all feelings are for feeling. Okay, now this sounds like basic information, but it was freaking mind-blowing to me. Like, I did not know that. I did not know that all feelings were for feeling, right? I thought that happiness was for feeling and shame and anger and envy and all of those feelings were for hiding or for pretending that I didn't have or for deflecting. So that day is the day that I began to say, okay, maybe the way that I stay sober is not by trying to be happy all the time. Maybe I stay sober by insisting on my right to feel all of my feelings. Even when it makes me a little less pleasant, a little less agreeable, a little less accommodating, a little less efficient. That practice of sitting with all of my feelings, because they don't kill you, it turns out. I really did believe that they would. I believed that everyone else was nice and human, but I had such a special depth of pain that if I sat in my pain, I would never come out. It's narcissistic addiction personality. It's like, I am the piece of shit around which the world revolves. <laughs> the, that's the attitude. And, and what I've learned, you guys, is when you talk about the different kinds of feelings, I actually feel like the uncomfortable feelings have been much more instructive and continue to be more instructive in my life than the comfortable ones. Okay. So I think that one of the reasons why we don't find our purpose and we don't find our people and we don't find our peace is because we are always asking ourselves, what makes me happy? Like, follow your bliss. Instead of also inquiring the other feelings like envy. Okay. Envy is a feeling that we are all supposed to pretend we don't have, except we have it all the time. And so what we usually do is deflect it. So like if envy is a hot potato, you feel it and you're like, oh God, I'm not supposed to have this thing. So then you like get it rid of it by saying, so for me, it's like if I read an article that a woman wrote, that's like so beautiful, I'll read it. I'll feel envy and I'll be like, okay, well, I never liked her anyway. The other thing about envy is that when I was drinking all the time, 
when I was just a fall down drunk. Um, if somebody handed me a book that was written by a woman and it was beautiful writing, I would not read it. I could not read it. I would refuse to read it. It was so painful to me. Okay. It was like looking straight at the sun. And I think the reason that it was painful is because there was a part of me that knew that a braver, healthier version of me could do that. Right. And I wasn't doing it. And there is nothing more painful than watching somebody do what you know you were made to do. So in your perspective, envy is a clue that you want to do something and you can. And that you were made to do it. I mean, you know who I'm never envious of? All the people on the Food Network. Like the cook people who are cooking all day. I'm like, look at you with your fancy tricks and knives (laughs) and stuff. But I can watch them all day and never once feel the nudge of envy. And that's because I was not put on this earth to pick up cooking utensils, okay? (laughs) I am dangerous in the kitchen. It is not the place for me, okay? But show me a poet, show me a writer, show me an activist changing the world. And I'm like, oh, oh God, I gotta be there, I gotta do that, I gotta Right. So it's, if we can get over the shame that's layered on top of envy for us, it really is this red arrow that's pointing us towards what we were meant to do. It's like self FOMO. FOMO. It's, it's, it's like FOMO. self, it's like self FOMO. Yes. You're like, wait, I'm in here though. That's so good. It's fear of missing out on self. Yeah. That's what envy is. Yeah. Can I talk about guilt? Because Angie and I are both moms to kids five and under. God and yes. We feel mom guilt all the time and we try not to. Can you explain how you think about parenting and guilt? Yeah. When I was deciding whether to really abandon myself by turning my back on my love for Abby or leave my marriage, leave a broken marriage, I almost gave up that life. I almost did not. I mean, it scares me now. It makes me sweaty to even think about it. But I almost just shut that whole thing down with Abby and with myself because I was so scared of hurting my children. Because somewhere along the line, I learned, I was conditioned to believe that a good mother never hurts her children. And divorcing would have hurt my children because for all the reasons that divorce hurts kids, but also because they have a great dad. Great dad. So one day I was, actually, I think I was braiding Tish's hair my middle daughter. And I just had this thought, which was, oh my God, I am staying in this marriage for her. But would I want this marriage for her? And if I wouldn't want this marriage for my little girl, then why am I modeling bad love for her and calling that good mothering? Right? And the reason why is because that's what we are conditioned to believe. We literally, we haven't stopped as women long enough to examine that belief. Okay. Somebody passed it down to us and we said, okay, okay. Good mothering is martyrdom. So what mothering means is that I have these babies and then I immediately start to die. Okay. I just, I just bury myself. I bury my emotions. I bury my true self. I bury my ambition. I bury my dreams. I bury my personality. And then I call that love right? And then I teach my children that that is love. What the fuck? Like we, the, the, the burden of martyrdom mother to pass that down to children. And then we wonder why they grow up not knowing what love is. Like we teach them that love means to disappear. 
And that's not even a little bit wrong. That's the opposite of what love is. Like if love is anything, it's the, the need to emerge fully, right? And to mm-hmm. have your full true self emerge fully and be held and free mm-hmm. in some ways, right? And so what we're passing down to our children is it's a bit of a death sentence, okay? It's, it's showing them a model of that says, if you are ever love, if you ever become a parent, you will need to die for your children. Right, because if we model for them martyrdom as the epitome of love, that's what they will spend the rest of their lives trying to achieve. Right, that's why Carl Jung said that there is no greater burden on a child than the unlived life of a parent. Mm. Okay, so There's true. Nothing worse that we can do for our children than to slowly die for them and send them the message that it was their responsibility that we died, that it was their mm. fault. Love that. No, no kid asks for that burden. Totally. Right. And, and if you get into why we are conditioned to believe that if we get deeper and deeper or higher and higher into that, why do you think in a patriarchal culture that our culture would hold up for women, that the epitome of what they're doing, that success inside of motherhood is to slowly disappear. Okay. To not exist. That's because that's the message that's given to women in every area of their lives. Mm-hmm. So what I think, I mean, what untaming is about really, it's like, it's that old quote from Walt Whitman. It's like, just examine every single thing you've been taught in a book, in a religion, in the world, by your family and dismiss whatever insults your own soul. But in order to do that, we have to unearth, it's like we're trees and there's all these roots beneath us. And the roots beneath us are these beliefs, these conditions, and we don't see them every day. So we don't know that they're affecting every single part of our growth or not, right? So untaming is about digging out all of those roots and being like, wait, I am operating under the belief that that a good mother slowly dies for her children. Do I really even believe that, right? And then ripping it out. Like when people are like, oh my God, you left your marriage. Like, do you still feel like you're a good mom? I'm like, I left my marriage because I'm a good mom. (laughs) Yes. Amen. (laughs) <laughs> a woman, a woman, a woman. A, I know everyone listening can't see it, but Ange and I are just nodding. For We're it. nodding very vigorously. That super resonates with me, and I and I remember you quoting that in your book. Um, and it's funny because I think about that a lot with my kids. So I have two daughters; they're three and a half and one. Obviously, the one-year-old is still like she doesn't quite. We don't know who she is yet, right? <laughs> She's a goofball, we think, but we don't know. And it's so funny because I think. You know, my husband and I have been together for 18 years. We met when we were 18. We were babies. We've been many different people together. And the controversial thing that I sometimes will say to other friends who are having kids and, you know, whatever, is I still love him the most out of the family. You know, like he's he's still the top priority. Keeping my kids safe is higher priority and keeping them healthy and, and all of that. And, of course, creating a good home for them. But, like, his love and my love with him is number one. Like, that's what keeps this train moving. You know, that's what keeps everyone good. And I and I think it's like it's funny now that now that there's the littler one is that I think Anoki, my three and a half year old, thinks Indira is her husband. Maybe, you know, she's like, OK, so there's you two and us two. And I'm like, that's great. You Do two it. And us two. <laughs> Sister, keep yeah. that going. Maybe exactly care of each other. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yes. Let totally. them believe that. Yeah. So that's my little side thing.
the career piece of all of this. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about how, well, not a lot, we could probably talk for many, many hours, but we've talked a bit about how this unlocks yourself in your life and in your personal life and in your relationships and in motherhood. How can this journey of self-discovery, you know, apply to where you can find your purpose in work? And how has, you know, writing and finding that really opened up your world in terms of your career? Well, I mean, I don't have a typical career, so I can tell you that I've had a lot of mental struggles. I suffer from, oh, I live with, I shouldn't even say suffer from. I have lived with clinical depression and anxiety my whole life. And I'm an activist and an artist, so all of my friends are mentally ill. Okay, this is just like, <laughs> this is the way that, that my people survive is through art and activism. And I can tell you that I would go back to the feelings question for that. I think that one of the things that I have noticed about people who are doing world-changing work is that it usually starts with a broken heart, okay? So I think like anger, brokenheartedness is something that we tend to think that we're supposed to avoid. So I hear that all the time, you know, I would read that, but I can't because it'll break my heart. I would go there, but I can't because it'll break my heart. I would meet her, but I can't because it'll break my heart. And it really reveals this resistance, like, like we're supposed to be down here keeping our hearts, you know, pristine for like return. And I think that what I have noticed is that what women tell me that they want the most, and some of us are lucky enough to find both of these in our careers, is purpose and connection. Over the last 15 and a half years, when my job has been to listen deeply to women, what I hear said a million different ways is I'm afraid I'll die without finding my purpose. And I'm afraid that I'll spend my whole life here without finding my people. And what I have learned is that heartbreak is the best way to get both. And what I mean by that is that if we don't avoid a hot potato heartbreak, but instead we sit with it, we, we inquire about it, we ask ourselves, okay, what breaks my heart? What breaks my heart? What we realize is that it's different for everybody. What breaks your heart will be different than what breaks your neighbor's heart than what breaks your friend's heart, right? And what we find is kind of this treasure map, you know, inside of ourselves that when we figure out what breaks our heart and we go towards the people who are doing that world healing work in the world, we find both our purpose and our people because there's no bond that's greater than I've seen that happens among people who are doing the same world changing work together. So in terms of purpose overlapped with career, which I think is sort of the best way we can do career, right? Is try to keep it purpose-driven, is to constantly sit with feelings and just say, what makes me angry? What breaks my heart? And where are the pockets in the world that I can enter into that are addressing that particular thing? You figure out what you can't stand in the world and then you stand there. I love that. And I have a trailing question, which is how to use your superpower, especially if you do live with a mental health issue. One in four women do. I uh, started a foundation with my husband called Sunrise. We're very connected to the Esalen Institute. So I know this world really well, but you call it superpowers. And I'm curious how you use your superpowers and how others who live with depression or anxiety or any other form of, of mental health issue can use theirs. Well, I mean, first of all, it's hard. It's, it's a hard life to constantly be dealing with all of the, the pain of being human and, and the world and then also have this thing that comes up in a million different ways. But I would also tell you that if somebody were to come to me and say, here's a magic wand, I can wave it and 
have your anxiety and depression be gone, I would never allow that. Okay. Because, you know, we're not supposed to talk about this a lot because we get accused of glamorizing it, but whatever. Everyone who has depression or anxiety that I know who's honest with me also has this sort of knowing or idea that there's some kind of magic about them that comes with that. It's not in that because you can treat that and the magic won't disappear, right? So it's not actually in the depression and the anxiety, but it comes with that sort of personality or life. For example, the sensitivity, the deep, deep sensitivity that I have that led me to addiction early on is the exact same sensitivity now that makes me a really good writer. Mm-hmm the kind of fiery way that I live. So I call it my fire. My therapist calls it anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me sweaty and just really difficult to live with sometimes and always sure that the world's about to end is also what makes me a really good activist, right? So I don't think it's just about anxiety and depression. The more I talk to people who are really honest and coming to terms with their lives, the more I find that it's, it's so often the thing that we were ashamed of when we were little or we thought was our weakness or the world told us is the one thing that was wrong with us that often when we become older and a little more enlightened, we realize is our superpower. My husband calls it that you're an X-Men. Like you see the world and feel the world even more strongly than than us normal folk. It's also cultural indoctrination that doesn't allow us to see sensitivity as a superpower. So just to be clear, in most cultures throughout history and right now, the super sensitive people in the tribe, in the clan, in the whatever, they are labeled, sought out, they are considered to be a little eccentric, but also crucial to the tribe's survival. So these are the shaman and women and the medicine men and women and the poets and the clergy, right? These are the people who can see things that other people can't see and are willing to feel things that other people can't feel. It's just in our culture, we are so hell-bent on efficiency and progress and more, more, more money, 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 then then speed, 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 that the canaries in the coal mine, right? The X-Men, the sensitive folks, they slow us down. Because they're the ones that are standing on the bow of the Titanic going iceberg, iceberg, mm-hmm. right? And everyone else is like, faster, faster. We just want to keep dancing. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ange knows my husband well. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, a month before the pandemic, when it was in China, he was like, we've got to move. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. Really? yeah. And we were like, it's fine. It's in Asia. Yeah. It's we were be- all in Tahoe together. We were like, okay, you can only talk about the pandemic for 10 minutes and then we need to move on. <laughs> See, he was like, ice. he was right. Yeah. Fully. Yeah, 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 yeah. He does this a lot. If he's listening, he's definitely going to be laughing at me. All right, now we're going to play a little game called Would You Rather? We've got a few questions that Ange and I are going to pepper back and forth. You ready? these make me very sweaty, but I will do my best. (laughs) And also it drives people crazy because every time people try to do a lightning round, I'm like, and yes, we would like to. And then it's like six minutes later. So I'm going to do my best to try to be fast. (laughs) Okay. 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 I'll start. Would you rather decide what to eat for dinner again or sleep in a camping tent with your entire family? Decide what to eat for dinner every day. (laughs) I'd rather do anything than camp or be with my entire family right now. (laughs) Would you rather write a love poem or write a book? Write a love poem. I hate writing books. It's the absolute worst. <laughs> we will promote your book at the end, don't Thank we? You. <laughs> Would you rather have pink hair or purple hair? <gasps> pink better. Yeah. <laughs> 
And the last one is cheetahs or tigers? Cheetahs every day. Easy. <laughs> oh my God. Let me end on an easy one. <laughs> yes. Softball yeah, question for you. Don't worry. Um, Glennon, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Everyone out there, please make sure to read her new book, Untamed, if you haven't already. And where else can we find you in this magical world of the internet? I live on Instagram. Instagram is my jam. Go to Glennon Doyle at Instagram. And Together Rising at Instagram is my nonprofit. I'm on Twitter too, but I'm terrible at Twitter. I don't understand. So just, just come be with our beautiful family on Instagram. I love it. Glennon, thank you so much for the time today. We are obsessed with you, the book, all the feelings. um, And we are going to find our authentic selves one day. Thank you. (laughs) I loved this hour together. You guys are wonderful. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. I'm your host, Brit Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Special shout out to my co-host, Ange, who you can find on Instagram at Angelica Temple. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Christine Swore and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Aaron Kaufman. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next time.